0: This week, my podcast is on high-dose and intravenous vitamin C and its use in the front line of killer diseases. We're going to be travelling around the world from Australia to South Africa and America, learning from leading physicians, experts in the use of vitamin C for saving lives. We will be talking to Professor Paul Marek Chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at East Virginia Medical School, whose intensive care unit has reported zero deaths in COVID-19 patients. We'll be talking to Dr. Anton in South Africa, who has specialised in lung disease and how to arrest this and effect recovery with intravenous vitamin C. But first, I'd like to speak to a former UK GP from Belfast who practises in Australia. So I'm now joined by uh, Dr. Shirley McElvinnie, uh who used to be a GP in the UK, is now practicing in Australia, but has become marooned uh, in Greece on her way back. Uh, so, Dr. McElvenny, if I'll just call you Shirley,
1: how yep. come you're in Greece? <laughs> well, my husband and I, who's also a GP, we had planned our dream holiday Uh, traveling around Europe in a camper van uh, for one year. And we started in September and found ourselves in Italy in February, uh, particularly in Lombardy. And so we had to make a decision about where we were going to go and how we were going to manage this because we're in an at-risk age group. And um, and so we left Italy and came to Greece. (laughs) And And here we are.
0: (laughs) And do you think you got COVID-19?
1: Uh, I'm very well at the moment. My husband and I are both out jogging every day. We may have been exposed to it in Lombardy. We certainly traveled throughout Lombardy. We were on public transport. We were in a very busy ski resort for a week um, where nobody was practicing any hand washing or any uh, social distancing at that stage in end of February, beginning of March. So we may well, we're definitely exposed to it. We, We didn't get sick.
0: Uh, so. Well they're, they're very friendly the Italians aren't they? <laughs> yes. And have you yeah. been taking vitamin C?
1: Yes well as soon as because we've been following this uh, outbreak since December we had been looking at um, medical news about this outbreak um, in December and you know we're pretty experienced we've, we've been through SARS and MERS and swine flu and and flu epidemics for years I mean we both GPs for over 30 years, so we immediately took action to protect ourselves uh, with hand washing and um, you know, not touching anything that could possibly be uh, harboring the virus. But part of that was we also started vitamin C, oral vitamin C, straight away in February, and we've been taking it every day since.
0: How much do you take?
1: Well, we take two grams a day uh, along with vitamin D and zinc to. Uh, boost our immune system.
0: That sounds absolutely perfect. Now, back in Australia, um, in your clinic, uh, do you see GP-type patients and do you give them vitamin C? And do you ever use intravenous vitamin C?
1: Yes, I've been using intravenous vitamin C for about 10 years now. And at the GP clinic, but we don't see all of the GP kind of cases, it's a little bit specialized. People come to us for uh, extra help and they come specifically for vitamin C infusions. So we use that for a range of conditions from something as simple as a a cold or people feel they're getting a virus infection. They'll come and have a vitamin C infusion to boost their immune system. Uh, We use it for chronic fatigue, uh, any chronic diseases that have inflammation because it's particularly good with calming the inflammation process and then right through to supportive therapies for people who are uh, suffering from cancer. Now, there are many, many clinics that are offering vitamin C infusions in Australia.
0: I mean, this is really encouraging because in the UK and certainly in Ireland, one actually has to be undercover. Uh, it's, It's really frowned on. Doctors are very worried about... Uh, announcing that they do use intravenous vitamin C. So is it different in Australia? Is this approved in Australia?
1: Yes. Well, we, we went through this process a number of years ago where it wasn't approved and then several doctors presented the medical board, particularly in Queensland, with lots of evidence showing that it was effective in boosting the immune system and in conditions where and the immune system is weakened by inflammation, that it was very beneficial. And so it has been approved for a number of years now. And as I say, there are many, many clinics offering uh, this therapy.
0: I imagine uh, the case of Dr. Ian Brighthope might have accelerated this process. Do you know him?
1: Yes, yes, I know um, Professor Brighthope. Yeah. All the integrative doctors who use vitamin C tend to um, You know, uh, support each other. So we have a close community
0: that. um, Because um, I, for those information, uh, for those who have not heard of Dr. Ian Brighthope, back in the early days of AIDS, HIV, uh, I got very interested. This is sort of late 80s in uh, in vitamin C, high dose, intravenous, uh, and so on. And in 1992, Dr. Linus Pauling and Dr. Raxit Jariwala published this exquisite study which infected T cells with the HIV virus and exposed the cells to an amount of vitamin C that was absolutely proven to be not toxic. And they got a 99.8% complete inactivation of the AIDS virus. They then compared that to the best drug at the time, which was AZT and it uh, massively outsurpassed the drug. Uh, I thought this would be really good news. But little did I know what sort of a uh, shitstorm would descend upon me for saying this. Meanwhile, Dr. Ian Brighthope in Australia, who was very successfully uh, treating people uh, HIV positive and reversing their crashing T-cell counts and carposis sarcoma using intravenous and very high-dose vitamin C, he got struck off by the uh, Australian Medical Board, uh, who he then took to court and won. And uh, the, the court declared that this was one of the most outrageous uh, 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 cases of you know, vilification of someone who was actually doing the right thing according to the science. Uh, so this was in the early 90s. And I would suspect that uh, that kind of helped to accelerate uh, the recognition and understanding about the importance of intravenous vitamin C in viral diseases because vitamin C has actually been shown to help every single viral disease that it has as yet been tested against. Now, I would imagine, Shirley, that you're, since you've been on the road and uh, now stuck in Greece, you probably haven't had an opportunity to treat COVID 19 patients. But when you do have someone coming to you with colds or flu, What do you give them and how well does it work?
1: Well, um, obviously, not everybody wants to have um, an intravenous infusion, but a lot of people do come and request infusions. So a lot of people in Australia are knowledgeable about these therapies and will come looking for them. So. They come and request intravenous vitamin C at the start of a viral infection. I would usually give them 30 grams uh, infusion that day. Often they come back twice a week. But what patients most often say is it shortens the length of the illness. And they have less symptoms and less severe symptoms.
0: And that 30 grams is infused over what period of time?
1: Usually about one and a half hours. So... If you infuse it very quickly, and some people do, I'm aware that some people will uh, infuse it much quicker, but we have found that we have the least uh, side effects and discomfort with the patient if it's infused slowly. And the patient can control how quickly or slowly it goes through. Obviously, some people are, you know, much quicker, but we let the patient control. Um, sometimes they get quite a cold feeling in their arm. Uh, So we give them heat packs, sometimes they feel very thirsty, so we give them lots of water and uh, make them feel as comfortable as possible. And most of the patients really enjoy uh, sitting for an hour, just relaxing and having a rest while they're having an infusion.
0: Now, we know in China, in the controlled study at Zhongnan Hospital in, in, uh, in Wuhan, they are using 24 grams a day two lots of 12 grams given over four hours. Yes. Uh, So, you know, there are sort of different strategies and I can understand practically that what you're doing is two or three times a week. Do you recommend people to take oral vitamin C in between? And if so, how much? And I'm talking here about flus, colds, viral infections.
1: Yes. Well, there has been research uh, done uh, looking at infusions of vitamin C backed up with daily oral doses as well and um, to support the immune system. So yes, people can take oral, and I usually prescribe oral uh, vitamins that are compounded by our local compounding pharmacy to go along with the infusion. So vitamin C is great, but it's not the only thing I use. I'm very particular about zinc and vitamin D levels and uh, other minerals you know, a lot of people are short of important vitamins and minerals across the board mm-hmm. uh, and and often vitamin c deficiency going into viral illness which then becomes much worse because of the inflammatory nature and um, the um the redox and um, the reactive oxygen species that are generated by the infection mm. so they can dip really quickly and that's where the infusions come in but a daily dose of oral vitamin C can also support that. So, what, I mean, sometimes about? we do do uh, daily infusions of vitamin C as well, particularly if people have to travel from far away. They'll come stay uh, nearby for a few days and have a succession of, um, and what
0: sort of... What sort of oral dose in between these intravenous sessions of vitamin C? We'll talk about the other nutrients. In a yeah.
1: Well, a lot of researchers recommend four grams daily. Mm-hmm. And, But some people get diarrhea if they take as much as four grams. Uh, I recommend two to three grams if you can tolerate it. So two grams certainly a day is a good dose to start with. Uh, you can increase to three grams, see if you get diarrhea, and if you do, then just uh, reduce back down to two grams a day.
0: And... Do people with colds and flu, having had an intravenous session with the 30 grams, do they report, how quickly do they report improvement?
1: Usually within two to three days. So the the day of the infusion, they often feel a bit tired. And then the next day, you know, within 24 hours, they usually feel much, much better, um, more energy, less aches and pains. Uh, able to go about their daily uh, chores and, and work and things like that. So 24 to 48 hours, they're usually feeling improved.
0: You mentioned vitamin D. Uh, I'm not yes. sure if Australia is in the English nanomoles per litre or the American nanograms per mil. Uh, but what sort of vitamin D in the blood do you want to get people up to and how do you achieve that?
1: Right. Well, I think that, you know, the general consensus is if it's less than 50, then you're in... That's nanomole a liter. Yes. Um, You're into vitamin D deficiency, but I don't think that's optimal. I like to get people to optimal levels. So I like to see the vitamin D up closer to 100. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I aim to get the vitamin D levels up there. I use oral therapy. I like drops. Five thousand units um, per day. I have given injections to some people who've got chronic um, vitamin D deficiency. So there's long acting injections that last for about six months, and um, they're very useful. And uh, but at least five thousand units a day.
0: Now Uh, maybe going up
1: even to ten thousand units.
0: Okay, now and also vitamin D stores, so a lot of people don't realize that, because in, in fact, you could take it once a week, you know, a, a seven times higher than daily dose, and you'd achieve the same result. Yes. Let's imagine that mm-hmm. I come in with the average level of vitamin D of a person in the UK in the winter in February or March, which is about 35 nanomoles per liter. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying, which I completely agree with uh, is that the optimal level is about 100 nanomoles per litre. And let's say I'm suffering uh, from flu, and this would be very relevant for COVID-19 as well, then what would you give me um, to get me up to 100? Would you give it all in one go? Would you give it over two or three or four days? What sort of level would you be looking to achieve that big increase to 100, the optimal dose?
1: Yeah, well, there are lots of different protocols, and some people use very large oral doses uh, very quickly. I tend to be more conservative, and would encourage people to maybe start with ten thousand units uh, for a few weeks to get their levels up relatively quickly, and then reduce down to five thousand units a day as a maintenance dose. I don't think that one thousand unit, which a lot of tablets are one thousand units, and you know. That's far too low. It's pointless using it. I think you've got to have a minimum of 5,000
0: units. And Just exploring this a little bit. So if you're giving 10,000 units for a couple of weeks, and and I'm only really doing this for the maths, um, what if you took 100,000 units, in other words, 10 days' worth, literally on day one if you're low, and then... Mm. And then don't do you know take it again in another ten days? Is that going to work as well?
1: Well, it's not something that I've ever prescribed, so I you can't do. give my expert opinion on that. It sounds logical that it could work, and certainly the the injections are higher than that. Um, so. You know, I would prefer to give it to injection. I would be a little bit concerned that you take a large dose and it might not all be absorbed.
0: There is a possibility, but in the studies that have tried it daily versus weekly versus monthly, um, the daily or weekly, you know, obviously seven times the dose weekly, has been exactly comparable in blood levels. Mm. Monthly, not quite so. Right. And it's interesting, in my, in my book, Flu Fighters, uh, which has a chapter on this, uh, uh, and by the way, chapter nine, Surviving Respiratory Distress, is free to everyone and available on the web flufighters.net. Uh, it, vitamin D has been used in high doses like that over five days in people with viral pneumonia, and Mm -hmm. has reduced the amount of time they've needed to spend on mechanical ventilation in ICU. Uh, So, in other words, there are clinical studies that show short-term high-dose use actually works. Now, you mentioned zinc, and um, uh, last week we interviewed Professor Harry Hemmler, who has done a meta-analysis of all studies on zinc, and he's even done his own very good study, which uh, unfortunately wasn't, Uh, successful, but he still does believe that there's merit in zinc lozenges uh, in the the dose range of about 50 to 75 milligrams. I haven't really seen, uh, although I love zinc, and I've got a whole chapter on zinc as well in the book, I haven't seen much evidence in the short term for colds and flu of zinc supplementation. Uh, working, but I always would recommend zinc. So I know you said you like to get your compound pharmacist to give a combination of nutrients, including vitamin C, including vitamin D, and including zinc. How much zinc are you giving people? What's your view on zinc?
1: Yes. Well, it depends on how severe the deficiency is, but I have given up to 90 milligrams a day Mm -hmm. in the compounding. Uh, So for people who I think are zinc deficient, which includes a lot of people who come to see me, um, particularly with mental health issues, I would generally give them around 80 milligrams a day okay. for three to six months.
0: Okay. And uh, that's quite a large amount. Now, yes. do, you, do you think we know that the process of flu and particularly COVID-19 and especially if you get into uh, acute respiratory distress and the cytokine storm, we know that rapidly uh, depletes vitamin C because there's a ton of oxidation going on and vitamin C is yep. consumed and spent yep. in its antioxidant mm-hmm. function. Do you think, do you know whether the same thing happens for zinc or vitamin D? In other words, do we just want to have a nice optimal level of zinc and vitamin D, or do you think that the viral disease process is? if you like, consuming, using up these nutrients?
1: Yes, well, I think there's two things. One is people going into an illness already deficient in factors like zinc, other minerals and vitamins like vitamin D. Um, So your immune system can't mount uh, an appropriate response. And then secondly, as you say, some of the nutrients are used up very quickly, so the vitamin C is consumed. in that process. And also, I mean, zinc is used in what, over 300 processes in the body. So, and nothing works in isolation. Everything needs cofactors and enzymes, and the whole system works together. And if you're really short of zinc um, and you're just giving vitamin C on its own, you may not get as good a response if you don't give the zinc and the vitamin D and, and the other factors. You know, there's evidence that vitamin B6 um, is useful as well. So rather than just giving one uh, therapy in isolation, I like to build up those other cofactors, which I know are essential for the immune system to mount an appropriate response that will get rid of the virus, and also you won't get this hyperinflammation that we see in the cytokine storm.
0: Yes, I mean, talking about the cytokine storm, I'm uh, next going to be speaking on this podcast to uh, Dr. Paul Marrick, who's done some fascinating uh, work on intravenous vitamin C in sepsis. And sepsis or septicemia is a, a bacterially induced infection. I actually had it a couple of months ago. It was very, very strange. I was traveling in Africa feeling fantastic, no problem at all eating well, drinking clean water, hadn't cut myself, which is the usual sort of route of septicemia. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one evening when I was, I was actually heading off into the wilderness the next day, uh, I, I started to feel extremely unwell, uh, started shivering and shaking. I mean, my teeth were rattling. I felt extremely cold. My body was burning up. And this went on through the night. So I checked in to the local cottage hospital in this town Nanuki, thinking I probably had malaria. They thought so too, but when they tested me, they said, no, you've got sepsis, you've got septicemia. You're in the middle of a cytokine storm where your, uh, your white blood cell count shoots through the roof. Your body is hyperactive, overreacting. He said, you've got to be on 48 hours uh, antibiotics. Fortunately, I had a supply of vitamin C, so as I lay there drip feeding the life-saving antibiotics, I was also taking high-dose vitamin C. And anyway, 48 hours later, uh, everything had calmed down. My temperature was fine, and I felt, again, fantastic. It was like a, a 48-hour process and, uh, and got on with my life. So um, have, you, have you worked with people with sepsis? Uh, is that part of the COVID profile? Uh, do you know doctors in Australia who are... Uh, working with COVID-19 patients in acute situations, are they using intravenous vitamin C? Uh,
1: As I understand it, there are patients who are requesting vitamin C infusions who uh, have symptoms or they've been tested positive, and they are seeking therapy for it. Now, um, sorry, what was the other part of your question
0: well, it was really that
1: in a way I'm trying to
0: understand uh, in Australia whether intravenous vitamin C is being used uh, for acute uh, you know acute respiratory distress. Uh, we know in the UK it isn't we know in America there are a small number of hospitals that are now doing this. We know in China it is standard policy. it's actually mm. recommended by the Chinese medical association in shanghai so i'm trying to understand what's happening in australia is it being used just privately uh, are there any trials going on in, in australia what's the you know where is it at
1: so to speak yes i'm not aware of any trials in australia at the moment and i don't think it's being used in the hospital so much but i know that in the community it is being used a lot and um, so Oh, well, because I'm not there at the moment, I can't give you a definitive yeah. figures or anything. But I'm aware that there's a study into vitamin C uh, going on in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And there have been cases there where people have asked for vitamin C infusions in the hospital setting um, because of swine flu. So mm-hmm. that is the famous case where somebody was recovered from swine flu and was uh, very, very ill. And um, the relatives insisted on vitamin C infusion and he recovered much
0: to everyone's surprise. This was on on primetime New Zealand television. Now, I actually have that film because this man, who was a farmer, was basically dying or virtually dead on life support, and there were seven doctors in the hospital who all agreed that he should be unplugged. Uh, Mm -hmm. His sons begged them, said, what have you got to lose, Uh, just to give him intravenous vitamin C for for a couple of days, all seven doctors said it would be useless, there's absolutely no point. But one said, you know, it won't work, you know, but, you know, why not sort of thing. And I believe they gave him 20 grams or 25 grams, I think it might have been, on yes. day one, 25 grams on day two, uh, his lungs emptied because they had been absolutely full uh, of mucus and he mm-hmm. embarked consciousness and he made a full recovery. Uh, that's yeah. from from swine flu. That's what you're talking about, isn't
1: it? Yes, mm. and we definitely need a lot more studies into this. We need to, people to pay more attention to this because it, it is very effective and it's very inexpensive, and it could be available uh, to all hospital practitioners. You know, as another tool to fight this uh, pandemic. And um, and, you know, I would personally, I would love to see it being used a lot more and a lot more research being um, carried out to, you know, to give us the figures. I know there, there are research studies supporting the use of vitamin C in sepsis and now also in uh, COVID-19. But we need it to be more publicly, um, you know, people to be more aware of this. And. And to be able to ask for it and say, "Well, I'd like to try this," mm. um, you know, and give the the patients a bit more uh, control over their choices uh, and what therapies are available. So, is it safe? Yes, it's very safe. And there's lots of studies being done into the safety profile of vitamin C, uh, up to very high doses, much higher than uh, than I would. Have experience using. There's a very good safety profile. There's a couple of things you need to be careful of. One is G6PD deficiency. And that can cause, if the patient has G6PD deficiency and you give large doses of vitamin C, there can be some hemolysis. But there are doctors who are very experienced in using vitamin C uh, in G6PD deficiency.
0: What is G six PD deficiency and what is hemolysis? Not everybody listening will know that.
1: Yeah. So it's a genetic disease. It's more common in African and Middle Eastern populations, and it makes the uh, blood, the blood cells, um, more easily broken down, and that's what you get when you get hemolysis, you get the red cells breaking down. So that can affect your ability to transport oxygen around your body and uh, and function properly. So um, some people have it more severely than others. And this is where there is a doctor in America who's very experienced because in the African-American population, there are some people who have this genetic disorder. Uh, but he has been...
0: Yeah, you can test this with a simple blood test. How do you test? Uh, yeah,
1: it's just a simple blood test. We insist on everyone having that before we give any infusions. Mm-hmm. Um, but once your status is established, then that's you only have to do the test once. And if you don't have it, that's great. Then you can come back and have uh, further vitamin C infusions the next time you have a viral illness or you, or you require an infusion. So um, all our patients are tested you know, at the first visit. So that's one issue. But as I said, that's not an absolute barrier to having the infusions. And there are people who are experienced in giving infusions with this disease. And then the second one is chronic renal failure. So you do need to be wary about giving the higher doses in these situations. But again, there are people who are experienced in this who can advise other practitioners what to do, what doses are appropriate. Uh, and how often. So I think we need to gather everyone's experience together and and start sharing this information and experience so that other practitioners who are interested can start using it.
0: Now in Britain we've got 4.3 billion type 2 diabetics, uh, literally Mm -hmm. 800 new diabetics uh, uh, diagnosed every single day. And one of the hallmarks of type two diabetes, perhaps not in the first year or two, but thereafter, is reduced kidney function. So, is that a problem uh, in the case of intravenous vitamin C, or is it really for the more seriously already diagnosed, you know, kidney kidney renal disease patients?
1: Yes, no, it's it's in the more severe patients. So, um. There is a degree of renal failure in a lot of diabetics, but not to the degree where it would interfere with them being able to have vitamin C infusions. But I think uh, type 2 diabetes is very interesting because it's a very inflammatory disease and those people, their immune systems are already working overtime dealing with the diabetes. And then when they get um, a coronavirus infection like COVID-19, that's the final straw for their immune system. They, They can't cope with it. Um, because the immune system's already primed and busy. So it's understandable that people with these inflammatory chronic diseases are much more vulnerable to getting cytokine storms and much more severe illnesses with uh, these coronavirus outbreaks.
0: Now in the UK, we have almost twice as many deaths from COVID-19 in men as women, and this pattern uh, is really has been seen everywhere in Spain, in Italy, in China. Uh, exactly why is we could say unknown. But if I was to guess, we also in Britain have almost twice as many men uh, diagnosed with diabetes as women. Mm-hmm. So, it's you know, we know in Italy that that smoking has you know been put forward as a possible factor. Certainly in China, more men smoke than women. In Italy, the difference is not that much. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think we know yet. Uh, Horizon here had a TV program which was talking about ACE2 receptors, but actually, uh, yes. you know, which are which are um uh lower in children, they were arguing that might be a reason why. Under nine-year-olds, there's virtually no death. I don't think there's been a single death recorded in a healthy under nine-year-old yet anywhere. Uh, but these ACE2 receptors are actually really low in diabetes. So, so, uh, mm. so theoretically, if it was that, they would have less risk uh, when, in fact, they have more. Have you got any? Yes. What's your thoughts on this male-female massive difference
1: mm. risk? Well, having been in Italy... At the beginning of the outbreak and watching people, you know, I think smoking has a huge part to play because it's not just the fact whether you smoke or don't smoke, but how you smoke and how much you smoke. And we were just amazed how many people smoke and how many people smoke continuously uh, in Italy. So they just put one out and light another one straight away. So there you've got uh, a toxin, uh, an inflammatory process in your lungs, which is going to make you more vulnerable. And then if you add to that the higher alcohol intake in men and um, the higher rate of inflammatory diseases like type 2 diabetes, I think just looking at a few factors, lifestyle factors like that, could easily explain why men are much more vulnerable to getting uh, serious infections and, and higher death rate. And it really indicates to me that there is never a better Example now of how keeping yourself healthy and fit into middle age and old age is the key to protecting yourself um from these illnesses. Um, I've been trying to persuade type sorry type two diabetics for years that you can do something about it and by changing your diet and exercising you can bring your blood sugar back to normal and reduce all that inflammation. And it has been done, you know, we have lots of people that have been successful in doing that. So you know, if, if you didn't worry about the fact that you were smoking and you had a high blood sugar or pre-diabetes, you know, from today forward, this is the time to take action now because we're going to have more of these outbreaks. This isn't going away. And, um, you know, getting your body working really well and reducing any inflammation is a way to protect yourself.
0: Now, one single puff of a cigarette is a trillion oxidants. Uh, We know that it consumes vast quantities of vitamin C. Uh, We also know that vitamin C actually helps to stabilize blood sugar and lower the best measure called HbA1c in Mm -hmm. in diabetics. So if you are concerned about how to reduce your risk of COVID-19 becoming a, a serious problem for you, this lockdown is a perfect time to stop smoking. Really, it's got to be done. Uh, even if you're popping lots of vitamin C, if you're smoking, you're you're you know you're not wasting your time. But you know they do counteract each other. Uh, now, a question I want to ask you is: that in China, in every single hospital, uh, the workers, the ICU teams, the doctors, the nurses, the volunteers—they are all actually given two grams of vitamin C a day. In the UK, uh, our uh, official advice uh, from the NHS, and also from the British Dietetic Association, is don't bother. Vitamin C does absolutely nothing uh, for colds or flu. Uh, what's the situation in Australia? Are healthcare workers, our doctors, uh, are people in the medical profession aware of this? Are they taking vitamin C?
1: Yes, I think a lot of people are taking vitamin C. Um, Sales of vitamin C tablets and oral preparations have have skyrocketed. Um, Information has been shared about the benefits of vitamin C. And so a lot of people, healthcare workers, um, uh, just the general public are taking vitamin C and zinc and, and vitamin D to protect themselves against the infection. And of course, in Australia... We just come out of summer. So people's vitamin D levels are at the highest. They probably are all year. And this may account for the less number of infections in Australia and also the uh, lower uh, deaths rate that they're seeing. Whereas in Northern Europe, people are coming out of winter where their vitamin D is probably at the lowest it's going to be all year. And so that makes people more vulnerable.
0: Um. Shirley, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your insight into what's going on uh, in Australia. It's fascinating. This is a global pandemic, and we are learning how different countries are responding all over the world. I can uh, hear from your accent. You're obviously from Northern Ireland, so I'm not sure if I should say "slauncher." Or uh, good day, uh, <laughs> or but now you're n- now you're stuck in Greece, which is a pretty good place, I think. There, I would say, Yassos. Uh, but thank you very <laughs> very much for sharing your time. I hope you enjoy your lockdown. You sound like you're in a good place and yeah. uh, return safely to Australia and help people uh, to stay well and healthy. Thank Brilliant. you.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: So, now let's talk to Dr. Paul Marek, who's chief of the division of pulmonary and critical care medicine at the East Virginia Medical School in the US, who has told me he has cracked the COVID code. Dr. Paul Marek, I'm extremely honored to be speaking to you. I know how busy you are saving lives. So, have you cracked the COVID code?
2: Yeah, well, thanks, Patrick. Thanks for speaking with me this morning. So, you know what, we think we've figured out how to treat this disease. Um, And, you know, this is based on our previous understanding of the treatment of sepsis. This is based on our understanding of this disease, COVID, and then our personal experience. The problem is that no one believes us. Um, So, it's obviously extremely frustrating. You know, we have good results, um, and we see it work with our own eyes. And I have a colleague in Houston who's using the same protocol, and he sees the same thing. But the frustration is, is that people just don't want to believe us because it's too straightforward, it's too simple, and it's cheap. And, you know, that goes against many um basic principles.
0: And to put it into context, uh, because I was uh, getting information from uh, Dr. Jason Varon over in Houston, and he reported on, I think, his first 24 people through ICU with no deaths. How many people have you had with COVID-19 through your ICU? And
2: what's your mortality rate? So we've had about 40 patients. Uh, We've had two deaths, both of these patients were over the age of 85, had severe comorbidities like end-stage cirrhosis and end-stage lung disease. So, you know, I think their chances of putting through were minimal. Otherwise, all the other patients have left and have done really well. Um, We actually had a patient who was admitted dead. So this patient had a cardiac arrest at home. Uh, He had COVID and had massive pulmonary emboli he was admitted dead to our hospital, and remarkably, he left walked out of the ICU last week. So not only have we really not had deaths, but patients who admitted dead, we've actually managed to resurrect. And, ex-
0: yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, here in, in the UK, every week, we get a report from the Intensive Care National Audit and Research Group, uh, and they are reporting... Uh, 51, 52% leave dead from ICUs. Of those on ventilators, which unfortunately in the UK is the majority, uh, the death rate is two-thirds. It's a terrible thing. So in essence, and remember, we're talking here more to a public audience aware about nutrition. So these are not ICU specialists you're addressing. But what is the essence of your protocol?
2: So, yeah. So, you know, if you look, what you said is true. So there's recent data out in New York. They looked at the first 5,700 patients and the mortality on a ventilator was 86%. So basically all patients who go on a ventilator die and you obviously then have to question what they're doing. And if something's not working, you have to say, well, this is not working. We need to do something else. So I think fundamentally, and this is where Many people have gone astray, is you have to understand the disease. And it seems somewhat obvious and basic. You have to understand the disease you're treating to effectively treat the disease. And I think without question, COVID 19 has two phases. There's the early viral replicative phase, where the virus, COVID, COVID 2, replicates in the nasopharynx and it actually replicates aggressively and reaches very high concentrations. And that's why it's so infectious, is that it's 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 highly contagious because it replicates to an enormous degree. What then happens is some patients, and we don't know how many, may just have an asymptomatic infection. Their host immune response overcomes the virus and the virus goes away. There is a percentage of patients who become symptomatic. So they develop typical flu-like symptoms, which is typical of influenza. Fever, cough, headache, myalgia, myalgia being sore muscles, which is typical of influenza. So the duration of those symptoms depends upon whether they stay at home or come to hospital. Um, And if they stay at home, it generally lasts about five days, six days, and can be pretty severe. Those patients who have more severe symptoms who come to hospital, they remain symptomatic for up to about 12 days. So this is a a pretty aggressive virus. So that's the first symptomatic phase, which is really characterized by viral replication in the upper airway. And then what happens is it goes from the upper airway to the lower airway. And the factors that predict that are not entirely clear. It probably is a, is a interrelationship between the patient's defense mechanism, the viral load. And that happens at about day seven. So you you transition from the upper airway replicative phase to the lung phase. Once it gets into the lung, um, the virus binds to specific receptors on the pulmonary lining, the alveoli, and then it induces an intense inflammatory response. So this is really the key. You have an early viral replicative phase where patients have symptoms like flu, but then they transition into a phase which is marked by severe hyperinflammation. So the virus triggers the production of inflammatory mediators. So we call these cytokines. The cytokine is a protein made by the host with the goal of immune, increasing the host immune response. But what happens in some patients is the immune response gets completely out of control. So this is a fire which is out of control. And indeed, it, it's the... Host immune response, which is killing the patient and not the virus at this stage. And <laughs> it's a, it's a <laughs> vital concept to understand because what is actually happening is the host immune response is out of control and it's the host immune response which is killing the patient. And that's what in
0: happens general,
2: in sepsis, isn't it? Ca- yes, it's very similar to <laughs> sepsis. This is the analogy between COVID and sepsis. And so the current treatment is just to support them and wait for the storm to die down. The problem is what happens if you do that is the storm damages the lung. And I think we now have data, particularly from New York, that if you don't institute anti-inflammatory treatment, this then progresses to severe what's called the fibroproliferative stage of acute lung injury. And they, these patients have severe, irreversible lung injury, and will likely never come off a ventilator. So, you know what what we say is that in the early phase, like you know when patients are symptomatic, you want to give them medications and 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 dietary supplements which improve their immune system. However, when they get to the this Pulmonary phase, you really want to down regulate the immune response. And this is such a vital key. The World Health Organization, American Thoracic Society, etc., etc., basically said you should not use steroids. Steroids are drugs which down regulate the immune response. And because of this advisory, people were absolutely scared to use drugs which down regulate the immune response. However, they made this basis, this decision based on um, superficial and inadequate review of the literature. And this was a major mistake. We now know that it's wrong. We know that a study from SARS that looked at 5,000 patients with SARS showed that if you gave steroids early, it was not helpful and they made it worse. But if you gave it in the later stage of SARS, it significantly reduced mortality. So what are you giving in this later stage? So what we do is we give a combination of corticosteroids. So corticosteroids are probably the most powerful anti-inflammatory drugs. They switch off inflammation. I think most people know about corticosteroids. Together with corticosteroids, we add vitamin C. So vitamin C has very potent antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. And what we've shown clinically and in the laboratory is that vitamin C and corticosteroids act together. They act synergistically to downregulate the inflammatory response. How much vitamin C do you give? So we've increased the dose slightly from our sepsis protocol because this is a different disease. So with the sepsis protocol, we gave 1.5 grams Q6, we we found that with COVID, we need a higher dose. And this may be because you require a higher dose to get into the lung. Uh, so we give three grams Q6. Q6
0: together, means
2: every six hours. Every six hours.
0: So 12 grams spread out over that 24 hours.
2: Yes. And we give this together with corticosteroid. Our standard dose is methylprednisolone, 40 milligrams twice a day. In addition, the other third component is we anticoagulate these people it's become absolutely clear that the cytokine storm or this inflammatory storm activates clotting. And the clots can be big clots or small clots. And this bears on both patients having uh, major clotting events, but also the small clots interfere with oxygenation in the lung. So we start full anticoagulation At the beginning, when we give vitamin C and we give corticosteroids.
0: Now, obviously, the ideal is not to have people coming into this massive immune uh, cytokine storm. So when someone comes into your hospital, uh, what do you give them?
2: Yes. So so that's a really good question. So, you know, we're not really sure. You know, you don't want to give anti-inflammatories too early. And then obviously you transition over to this. The stage. So, you know, what we do when patients come to the floor is we, which is the medical ward, we watch them closely. We give them oral vitamin C. We give them zinc. um, We give them some anticoagulants and we watch them closely. And then at the moment that we see they're deteriorating and they're progressing to the pulmonary inflammatory phase that's the point we hit them hard with vitamin c corticosteroids and heparin so i think the big, the problem is people wait too late and it's like it's like a fire the <laughs> earlier you can extinguish the fire the better the outcome and the longer you wait the more damage it does to the lung
0: Now, you give them zinc, but I I read in your earlier protocol uh, that you also gave quercetin. And then I was reading that quercetin is uh, a zinc ionophore. It helps to get zinc inside virally infected cells, and it then helps to kill them. Are you still using quercetin?
2: Yeah. So, you know, people think that, you know, we just sucked out this protocol out of thin air. And, you know, each and every element is based on science and extensive scientific publications. So for example, zinc, it's been known for a long time that people who zinc deficient have impaired immunity and higher risk of infection. What is fascinating though with COVID is that zinc ions actually interfere with viral replication. They interfere with the ability of the virus to replicate in cells. so it has an added benefit. The problem is zinc doesn't get into cells really well, and as you say, quercetin is a zinc ionophore, which helps zinc get into the cell. And how so, much do you give
0: in in when in a hospitalized patient of zinc and quercetin?
2: Yeah, so people. So it seems based on a meta-analysis with influenza. So you know, a, a lot of this data is based on projections and assumptions. So it's been shown that if you In order to prevent influenza and reduce the duration, you need between 60 and 100 milligrams of elemental zinc a day. So that's the dose we use, which is a little bit higher than the regular dose of zinc. But I think it's pretty safe. If you give it for a reasonably short period of time, it's pretty safe. In terms of...
0: And and how much quercetin?
2: Yes, so in terms of quercetin, unfortunately... It's it's not available in the, in most hospital pharmacies because it's considered a nutritional supplement. So we we recommend it to pay, you know patients at home who are symptomatic. Unfortunately, most hospital formularies don't have it available. We recommend a dose of about five hundred milligrams twice a day. Um, so if patients can get it from you know it's very it's readily available you know, uh, uh, over-the-counter at, at most supermarkets and pharmacies. Um, so we would recommend that. Uh, so I think the certain, the zinc, and the vitamin C has a more important role in preventing progression of disease and in the early phase. Once the patient has actually become severely symptomatic, uh, i.e. has respiratory symptoms, that's when we hit them hard with the trifecta of um, corticosteroids, ascorbic acid, and and heparin.
0: And how much vitamin C when they come into your hospital do you give, because this
2: is oral? Yeah, so we give about 500 milligrams twice or three times a day. Um, So the the dosage and the the route depends on how sick they are. So if if patients are, are not that critically ill, the absorption is adequate and you can probably get adequate levels orally. However, the sicker they become, the lower the vitamin C levels, and at that point, you require IV vitamin
0: C. This is the thing I find fascinating. The adrenal glands have a hundred times more vitamin C than anywhere else in the body, and I know that you've measured scurvy—literally scurvy. I mean, that is incredibly low vitamin C levels, almost undetectable in your sepsis patients. So uh, two questions, really. Have you checked uh, vitamin C level in any COVID patients? And also, if this virus is expending and consuming and using up all this vitamin C, then surely the cortisone's just not going to work. And that means that the person's fight-flight mechanism designed to keep them alive is not going to
2: kick in. Yeah. So you asked two really important questions. So You know, what people don't realize, there are two important points, is that humans, guinea pigs, a few fish, and bats are the only species on this planet that actually don't synthesize vitamin C. And vitamin C actually is not really a a nutrient, it's a stress hormone. So that when sheep or cats or dogs get stressed, they increase their vitamin C concentration, partly by being secreted by the adrenal gland so the adrenal gland secretes both cortisol as well as vitamin C. In addition, the liver increases synthesis of vitamin C. So this is not, this is not made up stuff. This is based on absolute science. And we know this absolutely and categorically that vitamin C in other species is an important stress hormone. So I have a colleague who's actually measured vitamin C levels in COVID patients. And they're undetectable undetectable. The levels are so low in all COVID patients that cannot be detected. So we absolutely know that patients who COVID, apart from all the other benefits, are absolutely profoundly deficient in vitamin C. So all of them actually meet the diagnostic criteria for so-called scurvy. So just on that basis, there shouldn't be so much controversy about giving vitamin C these people have a disease-induced scurvy.
0: Are you trying to keep people off uh, ventilators at all costs? In these first forty of your COVID patients, how many have you managed to keep off ventilators?
2: Yeah, so we've yeah, so we've realised as most people have that getting them on a ventilator is is, is precarious because. The likelihood is they're not going to get off. So we've had about out of the 40, maybe five or six who actually went on a ventilator. There is a small group of P patients who deteriorate so rapidly that you need to put them on a ventilator. But those patients, we, treat, we, we used very gentle modes of ventilation and we treated them aggressively with our protocol to downregulate the inflammatory storm. And with that technique, all of them have come off a ventilator. So we haven't had a single patient who's become ventilator dependent, which is completely at odds of the experience in New York City and, um, and in Italy and Spain. I have a colleague who's going to volunteer in New York City, and he tells me that patients who've been on ventilators for four to five weeks with absolutely no hope these patients will ever get off a ventilator.
0: And how long is it taking you to get people out of ICU?
2: So about the usual is, so there's no question this is a very pesky disease. So, you know, when patients come to our ICU in septic shock, we get them out within three days and they turn around quickly. There's no question that this is a different disease. They have overwhelming inflammatory storm So it takes longer to quell the storm or put out the fire. So I would say generally about five to six days to get them out of the ICU, which seems to be a lot shorter than other people uh, are are, are reporting.
0: Now, the tragedy here in the UK, there's now a couple of uh, ICUs who are using vitamin C. Uh, I think the dose is too low, about a gram every uh, 12 hours. Uh, I'm not sure that that's enough, but the biggest tragedy is that they are being presented with patients who already have multiple organ failure and they're, they're effectively putting everybody straight onto a ventilator. And I've stressed uh, that they've got to start earlier. The minute a patient comes into hospital, that's when you need to start.
2: Yeah, so you make some important points. The first is that I think there's been a lot of misinformation and false information and inadequate information that has been. Volunteer to to the general community, and I presume this is in the US and I presume in the UK, that people don't understand this disease. And if you don't understand this disease, you're not going to seek medical attention in a timely fashion. So there's absolutely no question of doubt that once patients, obviously not every patient can be admitted to hospital. Most of these patients have flu-like illness and they get better. But those that are at home, once they develop shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, they must move their butts to the hospital. That's a very important transition from the viral replicator phase to the cytokine storm phase. And if you wait until the last minute, obviously the the, the longer you wait, the more damage is being done, the more difficult it is to reverse the course. So it's absolutely essential that, that the public understands that once they develop shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, they must come to hospital. And it's at that time that the physicians need to treat them aggressively. Now, we have some dose finding studies and the dose that you're suggesting is way too low. This is a highly inflammatory disease and you need to get adequate concentrations into the lungs. So a dose of one gram Q12 or 12-hourly is just not going to be adequate. We discovered that our sepsis dosing of 1.5 grams every six hours actually had some effect but wasn't adequate. That's why we increased the dose to three grams every six hours, which we think is, is optimal in combination with steroids. It's really important to stress that the vitamin C and the corticosteroids work together.
3: Are there
0: any adverse effects from the vitamin C? Do you need to check people for G6PD deficiency or kidney problems?
2: Yeah, so that's a good question. It's absolutely safe. There's no question of doubt. We're unaware of a... We've treated here over 1,600 patients with sepsis, we, and we follow these patients very closely. We're unaware of a single side effect. The only caveat is that if you use point-of-care glucose testing, which with a certain glucometer, so this is a finger stick which measures glucose level, with one of the manufacturers, it can't distinguish between glucose and vitamin C, so it can give you a falsely elevated blood glucose level. So that's the only caution, and that's only with a particular point-of-care glucose monitor. Otherwise, we absolutely unaware of a single side effect. So it's completely and at least safe.
0: Dr. Paul Marik, I'm aware that every minute I keep you on this podcast is a minute that you are not out there helping someone. So I'm going to thank you immensely for sharing this little pocket of time, which we will get to uh, thousands of people. So everybody listening, please make sure that all your friends and family and any medical colleagues you know listen to this. Dr. Paul Marik, thank you very, very much. Sure, Patrick, and stay healthy. My next guest is Dr. Anton Janser van Rensburg. He's the chief medical officer of um exec Care in South Africa. And may I say, one of the very few doctors who has a master's degree in nutrition. Oh, I wish there were more doctors like that. Dr. Anton has a wealth of experience in using high-dose and intravenous vitamin C in diseases of the lung so that's very relevant to COVID 19. Now, unfortunately, no, unfortunately, fortunately, uh, I note that South Africa has very few deaths. So, what's happening on
3: the ground in your country, Dr. Anton? Um, hi, Patrick. Um, yeah, that's a really difficult question. I wish I had uh, all the answers to that. I think um, every country in the world is uh, unsure why we have these differing numbers. Um, um, so from, from my side, just, you know, g- maybe guessing and using the same speculation as everybody else is that our weather should play a role. I mean, viruses, it's a well established fact that viruses don't like, um, hot, uh, warmer climates, humid weather. Um, the fact that maybe we haven't done so much testing. Um, and then the other one, which we tend to forget that, um, um, COVID-19 is, is the sister of SARS and SARS. Um, or the, the, the COVID-19 virus is an RNA virus, and they replicate very fast, and they, they eventually become weak. So, they, But this is not what I'm hoping is happening in South Africa, that we already have a weakened virus. Yet. But yeah, it's all speculation. It's funny that you say that, because I was talking to
0: Dr. Peng uh, in Wuhan, uh, where they've had no deaths for several weeks and no one coming into ICU. He was running a randomized controlled trial on uh, intravenous vitamin C in ICUs ran out of patients. And that's uh, with a TS on the end. Oh, wow. He had nobody else to treat. And he, he, what he noticed was at the beginning of, uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, it was a very, very different pattern of symptoms uh, towards the end. And uh, he wondered whether the virus had mutated. Now, how long have you been using high-dose oral and
3: intravenous vitamin C, and in what kind of patients? Patrick, this has been for about two decades that I've been doing this now, and it's a very wide range of patients. I've got a particular passion for cardiovascular diseases, so many of my my cardiovascular patients are on vitamin C, um, cancer patients, um, chronic infections, fatigue, fibromyalgia, but particularly um, emphysema patients um, in their chronic care, but also when they get pneumonia. And, and maybe you could explain to people what emphysema is. And I should point
0: out here two things. One is that a lot of people dying from COVID nineteen basically are dying from pneumonia. Uh, we could sort of define what that is. And also something that very few people seem to realise is that they are measuring uh, in in ICUs levels of vitamin C uh, below the level that diagnoses scurvy. And the most common cause of death in people with scurvy, which is serious vitamin C deficiency, is pneumonia.
3: Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because emphysema is basically people that have smoked for enough years to destroy um, enough lung tissue that they are not oxygenating their blood sufficiently. So some of these patients that I treat that have pneumonia and emphysema are on oxygen. They've got an oxygen cannula in their noses and they are suffocating while receiving spare oxygen. And that's typically what you see in um, COVID-19 as well. Now, I just have to say here that I'm, I haven't t- treated any COVID-19 acute patients in ICU myself. Um, my treatment at this point in time is indirect. I'm supporting families um, uh, where there are people with COVID-19 cases. But in the emphysema patient, this is typically what I see. I see them breathing but suffocating. Um, and, they, and they've got oxygen cannulas in their noses. And uh, the intervention with intravenous vitamin C is profound. It has a profound effect. And you literally, even if you give it to an emphysema patient um, as a chronic intervention just to make them feel better, they literally feel better within 24 hours. And my, um, my pneumonia emphysema patients, um, from where they get a death sentence from their specialist pulmonologists, they um, 36 hours later, 48 hours later, they are nearly healed from that pneumonia. So are you saying that you can arrest emphysema with
0: enough uh, vitamin C or that you can even possibly reverse it to some
3: extent? I don't know if I'm reversing it. Um, In in emphysema, there's lung tissue that's just gone. It's not there anymore. It's completely destroyed. So I think what I am doing is, is I'm reducing inflammation and I am arresting chronic infection because that's part of the emphysema process is that there's literally infection going on all the time in those lungs. So the lungs that are left, and in um, one of my patients who had, according to his pulmonologist, 20% lung capacity left, we, because of his vitamin C um, infusions, he lived for five years with 20% lung capacity. Um, and that was purely because of the, the vitamin C. So I think we are just taking... A little bit of lung capacity that, that that I have left, actual lung tissue, and we're making it function even better, better than normal lung tissue. And of course, um,
0: vitamin C is not only anti-infection, uh, so it's both antibacterial, antivirus. It also makes the intercellular glue, collagen. So all tissue in the body, especially lung tissue, is very dependent upon that. It's also an incredibly powerful antioxidant. And of course, the process of emphysema or any lung damage pretty much, is a process of oxidation. One single puff of a cigarette Absolutely. is one trillion oxidants. You know? so, I mean, That's to be exactly honest, if you're, if you're worried about COVID-19 in any respect and you're still smoking, then you know, it, this is the time to stop because you do not want to get a virus that attacks your lungs um, when your
3: lungs are uh, you know, struggling to survive from, from smoke. No, <laughs> I, can't agree, I can't agree more. This is the time to stop, I mean, yeah. if, ever, if ever there was a good time. Uh, what's your view on vitamin C dosage? My general preventative dose for my patients um, starts at 2,000 milligrams a day, oral dose. There's enough um, scientific evidence to support that. And, and that, um, is, that, when, is that one gram twice a day? That's one gram twice a day. Some of my patients like to spread it maybe a little bit more. Um, and then you can experiment with the types of uh, vitamin C that you take um, using a buffered vitamin C or a liposomal that's slightly gentler on the intestinal tract. Um, and um, for my higher risk patients, I, I try not to go below 3000 milligrams. And the moment that uh, an infection occurs, a cold, a flu, um, or in this case, if you think maybe you're starting to develop something like COVID, then you have to break, and, and in my practice, we call it the magical barrier of six grams, 6,000 milligrams a day. You have to break the six gram barrier. Um, scientific evidence is clear about that, um, that that is where you start seeing um, an arrest of the infection, um, where you see uh, white blood cells just functioning much more aggressively against this infection. And that's that's my oral dose. And then IV, um, <laughs> in a way, the sky's the limit with IV, but um, three grams every six hours for ICU patients should be the minimum. Um, six grams IV. I mean, in some of the studies with septic burn patients, they they gave them four grams every hour. Um, so really, you can go and also cancer patients. I mean, some of these dosages go as high as two hundred grams in a single IV. But I think from an ICU perspective, anywhere from three to six grams every six hours is a is a good dose. I think what's uh, coming
0: out of uh, Professor Paul Marek's work in the states and also the research in in China. Uh, is, is exactly what you're saying, that you need to have it, you know, often. So like every six hours. And in fact, you probably, uh, you know, having three grams every six hours, that certainly sounds absolutely right. But I know that a lot of uh, a lot of, of clinics who are doing uh, intravenous vitamin C shots, they, and I think some of the, I don't know, I'd like your opinion on this. It might partly be practical. Somebody may come in and have a 50 gram infusion over a period of a few hours. But the point is. Uh, they're going to come in, you know, once or maybe twice or possibly three times a week. They're not going to come in four times a day. That's right. Uh, so so uh, do you, I mean,
3: with your emphysema patients, how often do you have them in? How much do you give them? So the emphysema patients, because I can't go and sit at their homes and give them 10 grams in the morning and 10 grams at night every single day. So what what I do is is I try to do a 25-gram Infusion, and I try to time the infusion that I deliberately um, produce some ascorable radicals to kill um, viruses in the body. So these patients would, um, if they're not acutely ill, they would come maybe once a week, maybe once in two weeks, and we would do a 25 gram infusion. And they would—it's like, like clockwork—they would phone me the next day or two days later and say they can't believe that with their damaged lung tissue that they can feel this much better. Um, so that's usually what I do. And if they're acutely ill, I give them an IV and then I just monitor how they're doing. And usually we follow that up with a second um, IV to 24 to 48 hours later and, and, and then a third one. But usually by the third IV in that week, the, the pneumonia is gone. I've, I've actually seen patients after a single 25 gram infusion where they, they were asking me, are you sure you want to give me another one? Because I literally feel like there's nothing left of the infection. Is it safe? It's an incredibly safe therapy. If you look at the, some of the studies that have been done in cancer patients where they really push the limits, um, they go as high as 200 grams. And then, then that's where you see that um, the, the, the worries that people have with kidney function are unfounded. The worries that people have with kidney stones is unfounded. This is an incredibly safe um, therapy and incredibly effective. Actually, it was the South African
0: group uh, down in uh, Cape Town University Medical School uh, who did the research on vitamin C and the rumor that it caused uh, kidney stones. And they proved that it wasn't the case. What happened in the early studies is they'd collected urine um, and they hadn't preserved the urine. And it actually had oxidized before they actually measured what was going on. So that was uh, Mm -hmm. Euer et al., A-U-E-R, and Alan Rogers. I remember that um, that well. Now, what about uh, your focus is on vitamin C, but what other nutrients do you recommend to
3: help recovery from lung disease and infections? Um, the microbiome is very important for me. I study the microbiome and um, bacteria in the intestine. So You need to trigger, my patients need to trigger their innate immune systems with the right bacteria, probiotic bacteria on a daily basis. And my older patients, I give melatonin, um, there's another link um to COVID nineteen specifically and melatonin, actually, in the older patient. Vitamin D, so right. important. Just I on the melatonin. D. How much melatonin mm. do you give? Um, you know, let's say my younger patient, 40, from the age of forty to sixty, I give them about one milligram a night. And then from sixty upwards, I just stick to about three milligrams um per night. That's my dose. And by the way, what happened
0: is that there's effectively, at least on Worldometer, uh, which is, uh, at the time that we record this, showing less than 40 deaths in South Africa, um, there has not been a single death on Worldometer below the age of nine. And I think we could perhaps say uh, that there hasn't been a single death of a healthy child below the age of nine. In Britain, we had the death of a five-year-old child, but they uh, they had other health complications that have actually not been Disclosed. And also, the other thing that's very different to normal viral pneumonia is way less deaths in pregnant women. And one thing we know about melatonin is the levels are very high in young children. They start to drop off from about the age of 14 and they also increase with every trimester of pregnancy. And melatonin has been shown to be an uh, uh, inflamma zone, it actually targets inflammation. Mm. So I'm very interested to hear to, that you're focusing
3: also on melatonin, especially in older people who have very low levels. Of melatonin. And that's it. That's what we have to do. Yeah, and, and then a few other things like vitamin D, <coughs> zinc, um, fulvic acid. Um, so I, I try to use combinations of these things. I think vitamin D is, is not spoken about enough. Even in a country like South Africa, sunny South Africa, I regularly um, test people's vitamin D blood levels, and I find that people... Don't actually go outside, even though there is sun. So that's maybe something that people can look at as well. What do you want to get the blood vitamin D level up to? I don't want it to be below 50. Mm.
0: Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, the grassroots surveys going on in the U.S. really are showing us now that it should be at 100, you know, higher. And I had a a classic thing. I I had a a month in Kenya in February, and I I supplement uh, 600 IUs uh, every day. And I had this month of sunshine, and I was outside a lot, and I figured I must be great. And I got home and got my vitamin D measured, and it was uh, 65 nanomoles per liter, mm-hmm. which is okay. You know, it's above the 50. It's better than most people. Yeah. Uh, additionally. But mm-hmm. even with the sunshine and supplementing vitamin D and eating fish, which is a good source of vitamin D, uh, it wasn't enough. So I, I, I realized that, um, you know, that, that even people who think they're getting enough sunshine really aren't. And, of course, if you have your sunglasses on and you're covered up and you're in your car mm. and your glass house and your glass shopping mall, the mm. sun can be shiny. And, in four, your, four, and four layers of uh, um, sunscreen. Oh, and I also read that, yeah, layers of sunscreen. And also I read that that, that uh, in people over the age of 80, their production of vitamin D in the skin was 80% less. Mm. So, incredible. Yeah. Um, okay. Vitamin D, zinc, you mentioned also melatonin. Now there's a real shutdown on uh, media talk about anything to do with nutrition and
3: also COVID-19 in South Africa. What's happening? <laughs> I wish I had, I had the answer to that. It feels to me like there's been a media shutdown um, for longer than than just this year um, when it comes to um, natural therapies. Um, um, I don't know. Um, I see in so many countries, it's possibly the same, and I see doctors really wanting to help their patients grappling with all these pharmaceuticals that um, don't have the track record that something like vitamin C has. So maybe it's, it's a whole re, re-schooling that needs to take place where um, especially maybe my colleagues just need to start re-looking um, something that hasn't got a sexy name like vitamin C um, uh, that it that it's going to work better and it's going to have a better effect, and it has more research than something like hydroxychloroquine and some of the head lice treatment that they're testing now, and some of the antivirals with all its side effects and very little evidence that it's going to help. So it's a, it's a very difficult question, Patrick. Um, yeah, I, I mean we have asked yourself
0: this question many times. We have the same thing. So now we're seeing vitamin C is saving lives, no question, in ICUs in various different countries, uh, hardly being used at all in the UK. It's very tragic. Uh, we had a lovely double-page spread on vitamin D, which is great, but the evidence even for vitamin D is a fraction of that for vitamin C. And there is no drug being trialed right now that has anything like the background evidence of vitamin C. Nothing no, like. not, not a single one. No, yeah. not even close. Not even close. Exactly. And of course, it's cheap, it's safe, it's unpatentable. That might be the problem. There's no profit to be made out of this. But um, what about other, you say your colleagues, is there other people using vitamin C intravenously or in high doses in the medical profession in South
3: Africa? Yes, definitely. Um, I think um, in the field of integrative medicine or functional medicine, I think it's a, it's a growing field amongst doctors. More and more doctors are starting to say, but hang on a minute, if I can get my patient to be better and I can use something that is safe, that has no side effects. Um, so so I, there definitely is a growing um, group of doctors. We still have, compared to the, you know, the, the, the sum total, we're still a small fraction. But yes, more and more doctors are now doing it and they are giving intravenous vitamin C. And I'm hoping that some of them will be able to be on the front line with COVID-19 here in South Africa. Next week, I'm joined by a man every nutritional
0: therapist will know, Dr. Thomas Levy, who wrote the book, more the compendium, called Curing the Incurable, which documents every study, be it in the lab on cells or in the clinic on people, on every viral and bacterial and infectious disease ever treated by vitamin C, going all the way back to the 40s. With 80 years of research and 25 years of clinical practice using high-dose oral and intravenous vitamin C, I can think of no one better to conclude our first series of podcasts focusing on vitamin C and its potential for health, both for COVID-19 and beyond. Join me with Dr. Tom Levy next week. I'm very excited to let you know that Flu Fighters, my book, on how to win the Cold War by boosting your natural immunity with non-toxic nutrients is now out, uh, both in paperback and also uh, in Kindle and audio. The book explains how viruses work and where are their weaknesses, why animals that make vitamin C rarely succumb to flu or cancer, the truth about vitamin C and how to use it when you're infected, how black elderberry blocks viral replication, why vitamin D levels crash in winter to make us more susceptible and other critical immune support nutrients from selenium to zinc and also how intravenous vitamin C saves lives in those with respiratory distress. And next week in my podcast, I'm going to be talking to doctors around the world, from Australia to South Africa to America, who are saving lives with high dose and intravenous vitamin C. If you'd like to know what's happening in the front line in ICUs, tune in next week for my podcast.